Hey everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Can NVIDIA live up to the hype? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Brent Donnelly, president of Spectrum Markets. Hi, Brent. Hey, Maggie. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I think we're all eyes, right, are glued. I mean, we had, we saw U.S. stocks rally. The Nasdaq up 1.7%. The S&P 500 up over, looks like it's closing up over 1%. As we head into this hugely anticipated earnings release from NVIDIA, it's going to happen after the close, sometimes probably within the next half hour, if not sooner. Um, Gosh, it seems like it's going to be a market mover either way. I mean, I think everyone's probably staring at their screens waiting for it to come out. What are you thinking? Yeah, this has to be one of the bigger earnings releases since like, I mean, there was a Zoom one in 2020 that I remember, but like this harkens back to like Yahoo's releases in in March 2000 when everyone was on pins and needles because they used to always beat by one cent and then they had missed once. So yeah, I think this is huge. I mean, the volatility around the last one was like one of the most mind boggling things I've seen. Of course, you see like tiny pharma companies go up 190% or whatever. But this is like a company approaching it was at the time approaching $1 trillion market cap, ripping 25% on air. It was unbelievable. So I mean, I think like a lot of times I feel like things get overhyped. But this feels like the hype is is worthy. Yeah, that's why that's why we started the show with that because it does feel and everyone keeps saying, Oh, it's not possible that they can live up to this. Mm. But last time, I mean, can you remember a time that a company, usually they like to sort of lowball their expectations so they can beat, right? That's like there's traditional. And their last time uh, that they were like, oh, you know, it's not going to be 5% higher. It's 50% or 60% <laughs> or, you know, one of our keen listeners will remember the exact number. And that's just unheard of. What about, In a way, they raised the bar so high for themselves Right. This quarter, right? And they're not idiots, right? Like, and they also do have some control of revenue in terms of like timing and things like that. So, yeah, it's interesting. You don't usually raise the bar that high, but my impression, as you're kind of suggesting, is that in their minds, they weren't raising it that high. That's what I'm wondering, right? Like, was it really 120 and they just said, that's exactly the conversation we were having today. Listen, there's an awful lot priced into that, which is why I think everyone's watching this so closely, not only for the individual stock, but also as a kind of harbinger for AI, right? Is Mm -hmm. it all that, and is it enough to lift the broader market? We don't, we, we don't know that, right? I mean, can, if, if NVIDIA does well, will the whole market benefit? Or is this sort of the, as Tommy Thornton said, the magnificent one? in a class of its own. No, I mean, I would disagree a little bit with that because there's a huge halo like to comp- to mega caps, even like Microsoft. So I feel like Microsoft benefited from the AI and then obviously it had that last rip on their pricing story, which was a huge failure. But I, I think the broader market or at least um, a narrow segment of very large companies that have huge weights in the index will still benefit in in if NVIDIA beats and NVIDIA goes up, I, I would think like Microsoft and especially will benefit. So you'll get a lot of lift in the index from that as well. Yeah, it's going to it's gonna be so interesting. Of course, we'll 
you know, try to talk about it if we catch it when it comes out um, and we're still on air, which we may be because this is an extended daily briefing, folks. So if you want to stick with us uh, in the second part of the show where we're going to do a lot of the questions, uh, you need to be a member for that. So scan the QR code. We're closed for new members right now, but get on the wait list so don't, you don't miss future conversations. Um, so, okay, AI aside, while we wait for that, um, what about the rest of the economy, Brent? What do you? How, we've seen such volatility in Treasury yields. Everyone's trying to game out the Fed, and we kind of keep, as someone described, rushing to each side of the boat. Right? Mm-hmm. That oh, the Fed's done, then yields are, and then everybody trampled to the other side. Well, the U.S. economy is way stronger than expected. The Fed's going to have to do a lot more. Where where are we here? We we had some uh, S and P PMI numbers out. Did did we learn anything from that? Did that change your view on anything? Mm. Specifically the PMIs, no. So I'll start with the first thing that you said, which is going from one side of the boat to the other. And I mean, that's really been the theme, if you want to call it a theme of 2023 is, you know, we had hard landing, recession, soft landing, no landing, reacceleration, immaculate disinflation leads to Fed cuts in 2024. And then you had like China reopening boom, China is dead, China's Lehman Brothers, uh, you know, there's there's been wild oscillations from one side of the boat to the other. And I would say that this last one, to me, may be the last gasp for yields and for the dollar, simply because we're entering a period where I think a lot of small things will all add up to make life a little bit more difficult for the U.S. economy. So my view is that we're near the highs, if not, or we've made the highs in yields um, and then that kind of flows through mm. to my view on the dollar and onto gold in, is that everything's really been tied to yields, right? And at this point, you have nominals obviously very high, but then real rates getting pretty high too. And there's kind of two lenses through which the Fed looks at at rates, and it depends if you're Williams or Powell or who who you are at the Fed. But the two ways you can look at rates generally is are they nominally restrictive or are real rates restrictive? And you can target one or the other. And I mean, there's so many like, it's like uh, Scottish witchcraft or whatever, you know, there's so many ways you can interpret or Nostradamus's forecasts or whatever. There's a lot of ways you can interpret the data, but ultimately I think through almost any lens, policies restrictive probably by 75 or 100 basis points. And then you have Jackson Hole this week, which could be an interesting catalyst because People kind of got wrecked last year, and I think people ha- are in this mode that the Fed will just keep on, like the the whole like they'll hike till something breaks kind of mentality. And generally, history has shown that that's the case. And I mean, obviously, a lot of stuff broke in March, Silvergate and and Silicon Valley Bank and whatever signature, all the banks that start with S. <laughs> um, but now I don't think that's really the right framework anymore because at least through the Fed's eyes, which matters, like even if they've been wrong a lot and they can't forecast better than private forecasters and all that, it still matters what they think because their view or their framework is the path of least resistance for rates. So up until recently, they were saying like no cuts, no cuts, no cuts. Now, ironically, the market's not pricing in very much in terms of cuts, probably almost the least the market's priced in. And Williams and Harker are saying like we can cut in 2024. In the minutes, they said they, that some members said we can cut and keep doing QT. So reduce the balance sheet, but cut cut rates. Mm. So to me, 
it feels like a really weird time for people to be pressing bond shorts. Like, and there's a whole debate about bond market positioning and a lot of people are really bullish and a lot of people are short and, you know, there's a whole big debate about that. Um, I don't think the data is all that clear to be honest on positioning. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's more like there's huge positions both ways. And mm -hmm. then, so it's easy to point to a data point and say, look, everyone's long bonds or everyone's short bonds. But I think the reality is that it looks like a really big opportunity from both sides, depending on what your view is. So I think there's big positions both ways, but it kind of nets out. But to me, it doesn't seem like a great time to be pressing shorts because given that markets are forward looking and uh, as you know, I'm a little bit more short term. So mm -hmm. what I do a lot of times is try to like pre surf the change in the narrative. So I'm sort of anticipating a shift in narrative to something more dovish, not just from the fed, but also from like student loan repayments are coming. Um, there's going to be a government shutdown probably in September that nobody's talking about yet. We are not talking about that enough. It's, no, it's like there's so much else going like, on that it kind of fell off the radar. And Congress is on recess for the most part and obsessed with subpoenas right now. Right. So no one's talking about that government shutdown, but that's big. Right. And sort of like, um, I think one thing I try to do is I, I, don't, I never look like two years out because that's just not my time horizon. But I think if you look just like two months out, you see that you see student loans the government shut down. Um, you have a lot of, like you mentioned, the PMIs, kind of disinflationary stuff coming out of the rest of the world, China as well. Um, there's some weirdness with tax payments in California, where a lot of people are going to need to raise money in October. Um, and then like you could argue Europe's in recession, UK data is getting worse. I think there's going to be calls for more fiscal austerity into the next election on the back of the, the Fitch downgrade. And just like that's what the opposing team is going to always do when the government's spending a lot is complain. And then when they get in government, they'll spend a lot too. So I feel like very close on the horizon are a lot of small things that all add up to be like, not, I'm, I'm not talking about some mega collapse, but like GDP now is printing 5.8 or whatever. And like a lot of estimates are more realistic estimates are two, 3% of GDP or two, two or 3% growth in, in Q3. I could see like Q4 zero or something like that. And like you said, when Congress comes back and people just start, you know, people generally, the market has one or two themes and it's focused on those and it'll eventually get bored of those and find a new theme. And I think that new theme will be a lot of little death by a million cuts for the U S economy in Q4. So I'm trying to pick the turn in, in, I, I'm not, the trade for me isn't in rates, it's in FX and gold. Um, but I'm essentially, I mean, everything's a yields trade. So I'm trying to pick the turn in, in all that stuff in anticipation of going back to the very first point that you made in anticipation of whoops, we got too far on the, on the other side of the boat. Like I actually, the other day when I got back from Maine, I made a list of and this was just like off the top of my head in five minutes, 23 different themes that we've traded in, in a somewhat meaningful way in the, in 2023. And it was a coincidence, but it was 23 themes for 23. Um, so to me, that is obviously a sign that first of all, we have no idea what's going on and nobody understands what's happening. And then two, you should be biased towards mean reversion if you're that kind of, and I understand some of your viewers are investors and not traders, but mm -hmm. from the trading side, I think the, and this is not just me saying this now, I've been saying this for, for ages, 
your bias just has to be mean reversion because no one has a clue what's going on. Like, I mean, even, sorry, this is getting long, but one more thing. No, no, yeah, no, it's important. <laughs> even when the BOJ started normalization, dollar-yen is 800 points higher and everybody was waiting for that to happen. So dollar-yen would go 800 points lower. So I think it's such a, a weird situation now post all these distortions mm-hmm. that uh, to me, the bias has to be mean reversion. And then everything that I look at for like September, October, November doesn't look like collapsy. It just looks like the current wave is, is unsustainable. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see, whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series, How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again. March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holes barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together. I think what you said is so important because we've been saying throughout the year and and we have really, we, we do long conversations as anyone who's watching this knows on our platform. If you remember, we do in-depth, right? Not 50 second sound bites. We do long conversations with people who've had a lot of experience, years of experience. Experts have made a ton of money in the past. Um, remember things like Yahoo going public, like you just said, right? So have, have, have been at this for a while and all of you, have said this is the most challenging macro environment. Things don't, you know, the the any model that anyone's using isn't exactly working and it's hard to string out what is a result of, say, the pandemic or some of these extraordinary things that happened. And then what, and and if, or it's structural change or the just the time lag. It's it's just, it's incredibly difficult. Um, So that, that echoes everywhere. So I think and- that is a super honest, statement you just made. And you see that with the Fed too, right? Like they don't really have a working model of inflation. Like Tarullo wrote about that in 2017 when inflation was bouncing around between 1.8 and 2.3. Now it just went to nine and they thought, you know, I don't want to rehash that whole history, but like there's people's working models for the last 25 years, mostly revolved around demand. And, you know, if you can measure demand, then you know what the jobs market's going to do. You know what inflation is going to do. And now it's obviously much more supply oriented in 21 and 22. And then now we're kind of like, okay, you basically had this like earthquake and now we're looking around and all the buildings are like half fallen over and we're trying to like in terms of economic models, Mm -hmm. not the economy. And you look at all these models of how things work and none of them work. Like that's why payrolls beat 14 times in a row because everyone had demand models and they're looking at demand kind of softening globally but it was all about supply and supply either was there or it wasn't. And now supply is coming back and jobs, you know, there's been a lot of jobs growth. So yeah. it's, it's a wild and woolly environment. It certainly is. And, and Whittle AI, uh, we, you know, we try to sort of game in what, what that all means now to jobs and productivity. So there, um, you know, in all of this, I think it's so interesting to hear people put 
there are longer term theses out there, you know, because again, as you said, there's a lot of different views about what might be going on. Raul sat down and spoke with Gerard Minnick about the business cycle, and he brought up some things that he thinks are fundamentally different. Let's have a listen to that, and then we'll talk on the other side. I think there's two big changes. Firstly, policymakers have rediscovered the joys of fiscal. Uh, because what they've done over the last 30 odd years is they've delegated managing the cycle to central banks and they really neutered fiscal tools in a way uh, of managing the cycle. Well, in the pandemic, um, they worked out that if you send checks to people, it tends to work and it tends to be popular. And I don't think they're going to unlearn that lesson. And I think in any subsequent downturn, uh, we will see a much faster resort to fiscal policy than what we've seen in the last three decades. That will make for much more V-shaped recoveries. Uh, and that's a big change from what we've been used to over the last three decades, which have tended to be very saucer-shaped recoveries because monetary policy uh, became in increasingly ineffectual as a macro stimulant. I got to tell you, that was an amazing conversation. It's called Cracking the Code to This Economic Cycle. Um, he talked, that was one of the things he talked about is that fiscal side, which we've been discussing, but there are some other observations he made that really kind of dovetail with what you were just mentioning, Brent, about the changes around supply. Really, really smart stuff. I encourage you all to go take a look at that. That's on the platform. Um, but it's interesting, this fiscal, because as you said, you're going to have, and this is an interesting tension between short-term, long-term, because short-term, you're going to have a government shutdown. You're going, you had the downgrade. There are a lot of people concerned about debts. So you're going to have this argument and going into the election, you're going to have this argument about who's a better steward of the economy. And they're both going to accuse each other of spending like drunken sailors. But long-term, he's kind of pointing out, oh, hang on, this might be a change where now the fiscal side that machine, once you get that going and they and they see that it's popular and it wins you elections, maybe we're in a different environment right now. Well, I think that's a really important point because since 2017, essentially the orthodox thing always was Keynesian economics. When there's a slowdown, you pump, you prime the pump or you, you stimulate automatic stabilizers come in and you increase deficits. And then when things are better, you try to get back to flat or whatever. Um, and then the Tax Cut and Jobs Act in 2017 was really the first time in U.S. history that the U.S. government went on a, a big, well, in this case, it was corporate tax cuts mostly, but a big increase in, or a big decrease in revenue, um, but no funding, no offsetting funding arrangement to say like, okay, we're going to, we're going to lose 600 billion of corporate tax, but how are we going to pay for it? And the question of how are we going to pay for it essentially disappeared and then the popularity of MMT with Stephanie Kelton and all that stuff kind of gave it some intellectual momentum, like, oh, we can just spend however much money we want. That's cool. And that has now become, I would say, and agreeing with the interview clip, that's kind of the dominant orthodoxy now is like, just whenever something happens, just spend. I mean, the Inflation Reduction Act involved more spending, ironically. I think analysis kind of showed that it was neutral for inflation, but but it's still kind of an ironic thing that the, the you spent too much fiscal and that triggered inflation is kind of like the basic model. And we're going to solve it by spending more money. And, you know, California did the same thing, like giving people tax rebates to fund the inflation problem. So I think it's going to be a really big problem at some point. And 
as I think you know, because I think we've talked about this, but I'm very skeptical on death of the dollar, you know, U.S. debt doomers and gloomers, because I've been seeing that my whole life and it's just been wrong for, it's literally been wrong for 45, 50 years or whatever. So when something's wrong for that long, and then I still hear people making the same arguments they were making in like 1996, that tells you that their model of how the world works is wrong and I don't listen anymore. Um, however, I will say it's getting a little bit closer to the point where what will probably happen, and I don't think this will happen now, but I think in the next recession, they'll probably write some number on a napkin and say like, okay, how about $9 trillion? dollars of stimulus, you know, we'll send checks for 5,500 and Ford F-150s to everyone or something. And I want that, one. <laughs> sorry, I'm being a bit too facetious, but, but more seriously, they're going to write a number on a napkin and that's going to be the next fiscal plan to solve the next recession. And at that moment, or maybe at another moment in the next recession, but at some point the bond market's just going to say like no mas. And the thing is, there's so much precedent for that. So that's the whole bond vigilantes thing, which I think Ed Yardini quoted or, or coined in like 1985. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Yeah, can you, can you, it was so long ago. Sure. There are definitely, I mean, I know a lot of people in our chat and I know who you are, definitely know what that is and and traded through it. Um, But there are maybe people who are listening to this on a podcast who maybe don't really know they hear that tossed around. So, you know, what what was that whole period that we saw? Right. So the exorbitant privilege that the U.S. has as the global reserve currency is generally that it can issue any amount of debt and somebody will buy it. And that has essentially almost always been the case, but not every single day of history has that been the case. So there is a moment where people will say, well, listen, if I extrapolate the interest payments and now when rates are zero, it doesn't matter, right? I can I can borrow a billion dollars at zero and I can still make the interest payment because it's zero. So that it was totally irrelevant in 17, 18, 19 and 20. But now with rates here, then you start looking at, okay, well, what if we slap another, you know, 20% of GDP onto the debt, then at some point, the interest payments start to dwarf even gigantic spending like military and, and Medicaid and stuff. And it starts to look a little bit stupid and impossible. And there's this unknowable point where there just, nobody will buy the bonds. So whether you, and you know, there's, it's sort of been building towards that a bit, like, China's obviously buying a lot less. The banks haven't been buying as many. Everyone's been buying less bonds. So at some point, it just goes super nonlinear and nobody wants to buy the bonds. And this isn't some crazy fantasy, like doom fantasy. It happened in the UK. You know, whatever, I was just going to say, we just saw the modern version of this when the <laughs> yeah. guilt market exploded. Yeah, that the, so, that the, the financial markets just tell politicians you're crazy. Right. This is not this sustainable. Is, I'm out. But at this the, now at the same the, time, right? Pardon me? Now it can happen like in an instant. Because well, that's the thing is that it's just like this weird nonlinear thing that you, you can't really forecast. The only thing I would forecast is that the probability of it happening right around the next U.S. fiscal announcement is probably way higher than any other moment. Um, but the thing, so what happens in that case is the market sells your currency and sells the bonds because it's like, that's the fiscal nightmare scenario. And generally 
if you look at in in I'm excluding emerging markets because the whole thing is works different there. But in developed like G10, usually yields going up means you buy the currency because it's more attractive and bond managers will switch to the place that has the highest yields. That's kind of like international finance 101. But there's there are moments when the bonds and the currency sell off at the same time. And you saw that in the UK in October 2022. We saw like a three standard deviation move down in gilts in UK fixed income and like a three standard deviation down in the currency. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, then there's only two things that can can fix it. One or or both of these things probably at the same time. One is the politicians acknowledge that this we've reached the limit of of how much we can spend relative to GDP before the bond market cracks. Mm. And then the other thing is the central bank has to intervene and and stabilize the market. So in the UK, the Bank of England came in and bought unlimited gilts or announced auctions for unlimited gilts. Trust got, well, first trust fired Kuarteng, who was the finance minister. Then she got fired. Then somebody new came in and and like got rid of all her policies that she had proposed in the mini budget. Quickly. Yeah. I mean, you're restoring confidence. It's the wheels are coming off when this happens. The funny thing was that the one of the tabloids in the UK said when when this thing was all happening so fast, it had a picture of a head of lettuce and a picture of Liz Truss. And it said, which one's going to last longer? They are like the 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 most brutal and the best at what they yeah. do. Tabloid, the, lettuce, right? the lettuce lasted longer. Like this whole process took basically like six weeks or eight weeks. Yeah. So um, it's not really a doomsday scenario because it, it's just essentially like a point of nonlinear bid out in the bond market. And then everyone's behavior has to change. But like they said in the clip, um, you know, it's it people like tax refunds, people like lower taxes, people like free money. And so as as a politician, you have absolutely no incentive whatsoever to not deliver that to people, because why wouldn't you unless there's some kind of pushback and the pushback to me will come from the market. Yeah. Um, and so the bond vigilantes is kind of like this. It's more of like a metaphorical thing that Ed made up. It's not actually like people saying we need to change fiscal policy, so we're going to attack the bond market. Yeah, it's not. It's, a, it's not policy just, driven. It's a loss of confidence, but it's right. a, it's a loud statement from investors. Uh, right, sort of and coincident loss of confidence all at once. Right, and that's the one way that I think the Fitch downgrade could have some relevance because generally, I would say the rating agencies have aren't like super. Uh, maybe not. I was going to say they're not credible, but they're credible. They're, they're just, behind the curve always. Right. They're they're announcing things that have been known for months or years. So generally markets now don't react that much. But the one little thing that it does do is it just creates the thought in people's minds like, oh, what if Moody's or what if, uh, yeah, I guess it's Moody's is the one that's still got, got US at AAA. What if Moody's downgrades? Oh, what if S&P goes another notch? Like the, just that it, because like you said, it's all psychological, um, the Fitch downgrade maybe at the margin adds to that little bit of like, you know, if, if you need a lot of, a lot of things to come together to trigger this like doomsday or it's like a micro doomsday because it, they would obviously fix it in three days. (laughs) Um, but the Fitch thing has a tiny bit of relevance there because I think it just gets you thinking about like, oh yeah, the deficits are pretty insane. And the weird thing about deficits, whether it's budget, current account deficits and all that, is they just matter when they matter. And Mm -hmm. like 
that's the stupidest, you know, truism or whatever, but it's true. It's just most of the time deficits just don't, don't matter. But then suddenly they do matter. Like actually there was a thing in Canada too, in the nineties, in the early nineties, where it was the same thing. They were running big budget deficits and like they didn't cross some magical threshold of hundred percent of debt to GDP or whatever. It was just one day bond yields just started ripping and the currency started selling off. And, you know, six months later, Paul Martin, I think was the finance minister in Canada at the time was like, Oh, we've got all these great austerity plans. Uh, we're going to make sure that we don't disappoint the bond market. And so, yeah, I mean, anyways, that's, that's kind of something I think to always keep your eye on and anyone that has that on your radar, it's really easy to, to know it when you see it, because if the dollar and us bonds are selling off at the same time, like, and I'm not talking about like 12 basis points, but if you're getting like two standard, even like one and a half standard deviation moves in yields and us dollar on the same day, then that's like, okay, this it's probably game on for this. And this will be pretty disruptive. Yeah. Um, and you want to pay, you you know, that is is certainly something we all need to be paying attention to because we're talking about the U.S. Treasury market, right? The mm-hmm. most liquid in the world. So when things go haywire here, there are huge implications abroad. Yeah. NVIDIA out uh, and it looks oh, like, boy. yeah, it looks like they beat. So I think 270 a share compared to 209, I think was the expectation, 13.5 billion compared to 11.22 billion expected in revenue. So while you were talking, I was just looking after hours. So it's up 6.9%. It was up 8% right away. I think I'm feeling people are going to want to hear the conference call as well, Brent, before they really. There's always the two legs of the release. And I think the, the straddle was like $45. So, which means like 510 would be kind of like where the beat should, like, that's where the options market had it. So it's a, it's a huge move and it's like a monster move in terms of market cap, but it's not like the doors have been completely blown off at this point. But then, like you said, this, the next thing will be to hear the conference call. Yeah. And, uh, I, I happened to catch, uh, the analyst from Raymond James, um, today, and I want to give him credit because he, he was, he was very good on it. And he was talking about, um, when they're listening for the call, it's, it's maybe, is it a demand, driving their forecast or is it supply constraints? Because if it's mm-hmm. supply constraints, they'll be worked out. And if demand's really high, that is going to make a difference, at least to him and I imagine some other people. So that might be some color that people want to look uh, for. And then of course, how much was, as you said, huge expectations for this, so much already priced into this market, a lot of people nervous. So it takes an awful lot. When you had your last release, you went up 25%. There's, It's kind of hard to repeat that, right? So uh, I think Christopher's saying, my guests sell on the news. So we'll see. Um, it's, it is pretty amazing to see, like when you see small caps moving around, who cares? But to see a trillion dollar stock moving, I mean, it moved 16% the other day. And yeah. It was two it's days. worth pointing out that in the context of that, this is these are insane moves. Even up <laughs> as much as they are now is, yeah. a, is a big move. I've often um, said trees don't grow to the sky, but apparently this one does. Yeah, which I think that very fact is making people awful, awful nervous. Uh, mm-hmm. We are almost at the half hour. So for those of you who are listening, watching on YouTube, we're probably going to say goodbye. Um, but we're going to, the members are going to stay with us for the second half hour. Um, just, a, just a programming note to remind you before we go over to the platform. Um, we just had super interesting conversation with Brent about bonds. 
Raul has been talking about this. Julian and Ash did an AMA on the business cycle where Julian went into it a little bit more. So on Plus and Pro, they've been talking a lot about their positioning and their recent thoughts, which they've updated on bonds. A lot of you have been asking us. So tomorrow's your chance to put it to Raul directly um, to get his thinking on that. And a lot of the things we're talking about because they're, they're, you know, thinking about all of the things that we just discussed um, in terms of this really difficult macro environment. A lot of the stuff echoes back to the to the academy. So Raul tomorrow for a drinks AMA. He's solo. You know what that means. Watch out. Uh, Marco Papich and Chen Zhao on Friday. Going to be talking about China, which is really, really important. A lot of interesting things going on. Um, Brett and I are going to touch on that in the second half hour. And then next week, we're doing um, an academy session with some of you members with Roger on uh, Tuesday. So a lot of stuff coming up to get your questions in if you missed it today. So join us for all that. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. 